This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. America has seen a rash of serial killings of statues. They have been burned. They've been pulled down, beheaded, sprayed with paint, and accorded various indignities that even a daydreaming pigeon could not muster. Some of this, of course, is part of the protest over treatment of black Americans, as it started as a reaction against statues of Confederate soldiers. In some places, it has extended to other figures as well, such as the statue of Union hero General Ulysses Grant in San Francisco, and also across California, statues of Franciscan priest Father Junipero Serra, whose indigenous Americans accuse of helping the Spanish enslave them. Aaron L. Thompson is an art crime professor at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York City. Aaron, welcome. How are you? Thank you for having me. This is new to most Americans, but this is something really with quite a history. Can you tell us about that? Look, as long as we've been making art to honor people, we've been tearing it down as soon as we decide they're not so great after all. Uh, and what's very interesting to me as an art historian is seeing how often attacks on statues look exactly like you might attack a person. It's a hunk of metal after all, but we behead them, we humiliate them, uh, we drag them around to take out on a symbol uh, our violence or our anger against an idea. And I guess our opinions of this particular kind of protest kind of depend on how we view the figure. Some of the same Americans who are very upset about what's going on in the United States right now, of course, were thrilled when the statues of Saddam Hussein came down in Iraq. Exactly. Uh, and it really happens in a less violent form all the, the time. Think about images of the president. If a new president is elected, new um uh, commemorative photos go up. Uh, this is just what we do. But sometimes we treat the old ones in a in a more violent way. One of the arguments against attaching statues is, besides these being history, that they're just symbols, that the things that you dislike, that they're symbolic of maybe really untouched by this. And that's true, that knocking down a statue of a slaveholder is not going to correct systematic racism in the United States. Uh, but these statues, people do say, are uh, very painful to see. They're constant reminders of 
uh, who's in charge and whose voices are not heard. What people often don't know about many of the Confederate statues that are being attacked is that they were erected not in the aftermath of the war, but in the 20th century, especially many during the Jim Crow era, as basically a sign to potential Black voters of know your place, this is our history here, you're you're not going to be able to be a part of it. And a lot of them were put up with collections, and, and this is true often of individual statues, but what's interesting about the Confederate statues, whether you're for them or against them, is that this was fundraising by groups that were behind many of these statues. Yes, and what's interesting to me is that the protests began as soon as these statues were planned. So there have been decades and decades of peaceful protests against many of these statues that we've seen attacked more physically. And if you don't let people have a hope that their peaceful voices and protests are ever going to be heard about who we display in the public sphere, then you can't really be surprised if other forms of protest are taken. The statue of Edward Coulson that was just thrown into the harbor in Bristol has been fished out again, and it's going to be displayed in their museum with the protest paint still on it and a a tire they found in the harbor with it, fished out next to it, um, to put into context the Black Lives Matter protests. So you can imagine different futures for monuments. There are great photos online of of communist monuments, of of statues of, of Lenin and et cetera, painted to look like superheroes or Star Wars figures. So in other words, you're looking to a better future by attacking reminder of the past. In this case, a lot of people are painting this as positive, but here's where, and and maybe this is just terms of philosophy, this gets difficult because we saw ISIS doing that when they were blowing up ancient Sufi shrines and temples and churches and any sign of any kind of religious diversity in the parts of Syria and Iraq that they briefly controlled. So they were saying, no, we're showing what our future is going to be by destroying the past. And in those cases, you know, the entire world was horrified. Well, I think you have it exactly right, because you have to look at the motivations for the destruction. So ISIS was destroying any sign of this rich history of religious tolerance so they could impose their single violent, um, oppressive vision of what the world should be. Uh, They wanted to destroy the tolerant past in order to carry out the hateful future. Uh, What we're seeing here in the U.S. and around the world, really, is, I think, the opposite, um, that symbols of hateful, violent, racist past thought are being attacked as a symbol of uh, an openness and tolerance of a hope for a future. You're an art crime professor. How have we dealt with destruction of statues in the past? Just as forgetting, you know, people trying to decide politically who's right and wrong, just as destruction of a work of art, how have we dealt with that? Well, people attack works of art surprisingly often, or at least people are often surprised when they find out how often statues are attacked. And often we put them back together, we restore them, and then that attack becomes part of the work of the statue, uh, becomes part of the the life of that artwork. Um, For example, Michelangelo's Pieta in St. Peter's in the Vatican was attacked by a man wielding a hammer. Uh, and they picked the bits back up and um, glued them back up. Uh, So we know that 
attacks are one reaction to art, and we are interested in studying what motivates them and, and how we can move forward from them. Let me ask you a general question. Are statues still a thing? I mean, we're talking and debating it right now because of what's happened, thrilling to some people, shocking to other people. But they seem to be fading out as a way of honoring people. This seems to be a fairly recent development because, of course, we can go in museums and see statues honoring people going back, as you've said, thousands of years. But more and more people tend to just walk by them and have no idea who these people were or why there's a statue of them. And I may be missing it, but there seem to be fewer and fewer collections going up to to do statues and monuments anymore. Are they less of a thing than they were? Are people more interested in finding a great article about somebody on the internet than they are of a monument? Well, whenever people ask me, what do I think should happen to these empty pedestals or when statues are taken down, I say, just put up some playground equipment instead. Who needs a statue of whoever? Uh, I just want my kids to be able to go down a good slide or something like that. Um, but I agree. It, statues are not very good ways of teaching history. Um, you get maybe 50 words on a plaque and that's it. Uh, you have to go look it up yourself. And um, I think that's why we're seeing in recent days some statues of abolitionists uh, being attacked, I think, by accident um, to because it's it's difficult to tell from a statue what it's celebrating. There are many better ways to teach history to appreciate history, to argue about history than having a statue. And also, statues are really expensive, um, not only to build, but to maintain. So in America, we spend millions of dollars a year as federal taxpayers maintaining Confederate celebrating monuments and sites. Uh, so just having these statues up, it's not a neutral thing. We're paying for them. So I think why pay to commemorate this type of past instead of using the money for one of the many, many, many better ways it could be spent. I wonder if that's also part of what's going on now, that you have younger people who, whether they're involved in taking down statues or saying, oh, this isn't right or whatever, just can't really get into statues. It does seem a little silly. You know, the negative aspects of statues uh, of commemorating a violent past are much more obvious than anything beneficial. Well, it'll be interesting to see how all this ends and whether points are made and by who and if any of these statues go back, back up and who decides to maintain them. Aaron L. Thompson is an art crime professor at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York City. Aaron, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. This is America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. The United States is deep in a debate about police procedures and reforms. It's not a new debate, but it's one of the many sorts of debates that flare up after incidents and then recede again after a few weeks, but not this time. A combination of videos and police chiefs and mayors frustrated by efforts at reform in the past seem to have left the country in a mood to do something. This week, the House passed a police reform bill headed to an uncertain fate in the Senate. Congressman Jim McGovern is a Democrat and chairman of the House Rules Committee. Jim, good to have you with us. How are you? 
I'm doing fine. Happy to be with you. Before we get to the Justice and Policing Act and some of the things that are being considered in Congress, what do you think has changed? Because we've had incidents like the incidents in the news before. We've had this conversation before, but it seems the public mood is very different. You're right. I mean, uh, this is uh, not unique, unfortunately. Uh, we've, we've seen these kinds of murders happen time and time again. Well, you know, one of the things uh, that I think made a difference here is that young teenage uh, girl who videotaped all of this for the whole world to see. Anybody who watched that video uh, had to be horrified. And as a result, I think uh, you, you, you've seen uh, unprecedented outrage uh, at these protests. You've seen incredible diversity. And the pressure has built uh, on Congress to do something. And I, I think, uh, you know, we have this moment, uh, which seems a little bit different than in the past, where we're actually going to do something. I mean, what usually happens after these tragedies is that uh, members of Congress issue press releases saying, boy, this is terrible. You know, we have to do, do something about systemic racism in this country. And then we move on to the next subject. Uh, but this is different. Uh, the Congressional Black Caucus, led by Chairwoman Karen Bass, has done an incredible job of putting together the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act of 2020, which I think takes a step a step in the right direction. But, you know, look, the American people uh, are waking up to injustice. And I don't know all the factors that make this moment uh, a turning point, but uh, thank God it is a turning point. You're one of the many co-sponsors of the Justice and Policing Act. Can you explain to us what's in it? And then we can go through some of these points one by one. I mean, there's a lot of different things in it. I mean, there's uh, efforts to end racial and religious profiling, banning chokeholds and no-knock warrants, uh, limiting military equipment. Uh, You know, we have a program where the Pentagon can provide equipment to our local police departments. And we've seen everything from tanks to grenade launchers being provided to local police departments. And, uh, you know, our, our, our citizens are, you know, are not enemy combatants uh, and we shouldn't uh, treat them as such. Uh, there's an effort to, uh, to deal with uh, qualified immunity to, so we can hold police accountable in court when they uh, violate people's civil uh, rights. Uh, an effort to investigate police misconduct, uh, uh, more transparency by collecting data on police misconduct and use of force. Uh, I mean, and there's, a, you know, a lot of other things in there. And okay, this is not everything uh, that, that needs to be addressed, but it is a step in the right direction. And I think it is a meaningful step in the right direction. Let's go through some of those things. But first, you know, the general question that people are wondering about, we're talking about federal legislation, things like banning chokeholds at the federal level. But many of these things are going to be controlled by laws at the state level. And how much control does the federal government have over that? Well, I mean, the federal government can provide assistance and aid and incentives for local jurisdictions to comply. I mean, there's you know such a thing as carrots and sticks. But I think what's 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 happening at, at the local level, and I can even talk about it in my own district, is that there is a, a growing awareness that a lot of these issues um, are really local issues that need to be addressed. But the federal government can play a powerful role in helping create a climate and providing the incentives to help. Uh, make it more likely that our local uh, jurisdictions will do the right thing. You mentioned the program from the Pentagon where surplus weaponry can be bought by police department. These are mainly weapons that were made, meant as military weapons. How did this seemingly get out of hand to the point where local police departments are that don't even have enough servers, say, to record all of the video that may be recorded by police camps? How did this get to the point that these military-grade weapons were being used? I think the initial impetus for this came after things like 9-11, where people were afraid local police forces would be facing terrorism on a level that they hadn't seen before. But this seems to have grown to an extent and in areas where it was really not considered when this program started. Yeah, well, look, like like many ideas, um, well-intentioned, but, um, you know, it got out of control. I mean, uh, you know, I remember President Obama tried to 
form this. Uh, but, you know, all, all police departments are not all the same. Uh, but there are some that, you know, when they see new equipment, even if it's, you know, weapons, even if it's equipment used for war, I mean, you know, they, they, they apply for it. They try to get it. Uh, and again, we have departments that have amassed military equipment that really is equipment that is meant to, for fighting wars and, for, you know, dealing with enemy combatants, not dealing with, with our citizens. I mean, policing shouldn't be, you know, viewed as the same way uh, we view the role of our military. And unfortunately, in some jurisdictions, that, is, uh, that, 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 that has been the case. You mentioned transparency and the idea of a national police misconduct registry. I think this is something that came as a surprise to a lot of people that if I'm a police department in one city and somebody applies to be a police officer, very often I have no way to find out if they have been accused of misconduct in another police department somewhere because these records are not public even to them. Correct. It's ridiculous. Uh, and I think it came as a surprise to a lot of people. But that's been one of the problems. I mean, you've had some bad police officers that have moved from one department to another department to another department uh, who have hor- hor- horrific records. Now, I don't know whether you know those who hired them were aware of some of their records, but uh, the bottom line is my guess is that in many cases they didn't. And they just brought their bad behavior uh, from one department to another. And look, I think it's important for the public to know whether or not uh, there are police officers who have a history of uh, violating people's civil rights. The, the murderer of George Floyd uh, has a long history of, uh, of abuse and misconduct. And, uh, and you, have, you have to wonder, like, why are they allowed to remain on the force, never mind being able to, be, to go to one department to another? There's an irony here. One of the reasons for that is the strength of police unions. And the irony here is that you have many conservative groups usually not happy about unions, especially public employee unions of any kind, who are backing the unions and do not want their power broken. You have many people on the liberal side who are usually backers of strong unions saying this has gotten out of hand. It's an odd situation. No, it is. I mean, look, at I have a long history of supporting unions. Um, I'm proud of my pro-labor record. I, I you know, I believe uh, I believe it's important for uh, people to organize on behalf- and fight for their rights uh, in the workplace. But the bottom line uh, here is that, uh, you know, our, our, our police are, are people who are being paid with taxpayer money. Uh, and there needs to be transparency. This is not about wages. This is not about things that you know, normally would have collective bargaining issues, uh, you know, over. But I mean, it's it, this is it's about transparency. P- people are paying their salaries. They ought to know that there's integrity on the police force uh, in their local communities. Mentioned body camps. And of course, as you pointed out, one of the reasons why we're talking about all of this right now were pictures taken not even from the body cam of police officers, but from a teenage girl. But there's some interesting things about that case in Minnesota. We have the police officer looking right at that girl. And in some past cases, we've seen officers try to stop people from filming with their phones, uh, turning off their body cams, even taking phones away from bystanders at the scene of a controversial incident. The officer's looking right at her. Well, well first of all, I, I think we need to have body cameras. And I, again, I think we, I mean, I, I believe that if George Floyd looked like me, he was a middle-aged white man, um, he'd still be alive today. I believe if we had no video of, of that incident, that we would probably not be having this discussion today. So we do need transparency. But look, we also need to change the culture of law enforcement. And that requires maybe a different kind of training to build integrity and to build trust. Because look, uh, you know, we can, there, there are a lot of factors that need to be considered if we're going to truly reform the current system and get the kind of structural change that we all want. This bill reinvests, you know, in our communities by supporting critical community-based programs to, to help change the culture of law enforcement and to empower communities to try to reimagine 
public safety in, 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 a, in a different way, in a more equitable and just way. You know, it, it, it establishes public safety innovation grants for community-based organizations to create commissions and task forces to help communities reimagine and develop concrete and just and equitable public safety approaches. It's, it's not just one thing that's going to make the difference. It's a lot of things, including more involvement from part of the community that is not law enforcement. The relationship between police and minorities has been broken for a long time, and it's hurt both sides. There's something else that seems to be going on as well, less talked about, that as the police have been used more and more as fine collectors to support the courts, there seems to be more and more a divide between police generally and the populace. Have you seen that too? And if that's what's going on, what do we do about it? Well, yeah, and, and I have. And we also need to, at some point, talk more about how we uh, reform our criminal justice system as a whole. But look, I mean, police are involved in a whole range of things that, quite frankly, I'm not sure they should be involved in. Okay, finally, let's talk about the House bill. Let's talk about any congressional effort on this. Are there any Republicans who are co-sponsors of this bill? It's interesting. I see it has libertarian support that often generally goes to the Republican side. But in this case, you have libertarians from places like Cato Institute that are favoring this bill. But there are there any representatives with an R next to their name that have signed on to this? Well, my hope and my expectation is that when we vote that we will get some Republicans that will support this. And then my hope is that the Senate will, will take this up. Again, what, what, one of the things we're trying to avoid here um, is passing merely a press release, passing something that doesn't do anything, that makes no difference. Uh, that's easy to do. Uh, we, we do those types of bills all the time on a whole bunch of issues. You know, let's turn this tragedy um, into, an, into a moment where we come together and actually make real structural, meaningful change. And if we do that, uh, uh, then I think that's the best way to honor George Floyd and all those uh, who have lost their lives to police brutality and, and other senseless uh, violence. Congressman Jim McGovern is chairman of the House Rules Committee. Congressman, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Gil. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. For centuries, America has been well protected by the oceans on either coast and benign neighbors to the north and south. But in the 21st century, we are entering into a type of warfare that knows no geographic boundaries, that is changing our security needs forever. That threat is cyber warfare. This week, lawmakers, both Republicans and Democrats, urged the Trump administration to create a central cybersecurity leadership team to unite the government's efforts across all divisions. Why is cybersecurity such a high priority? Well, earlier this year, we spoke with Richard Clark, who was National Coordinator for Security, Infrastructure Protection, and Counterterrorism for the United States under Presidents Bill Clinton and George W. Bush. We asked him what risks the United States are facing. I break it down into several categories, and I use the word CHEW, C-H-E-W, to help as a little mnemonic. Cyber crime, cyber hacking, hacktivism, cyber espionage, and cyber war, C-H-E-W. Uh, right now, the problem we've got is cybercrime, mainly, uh, where uh, criminal groups around the world have hired computer experts to help them, uh, and they are collecting hundreds of millions of dollars, actually it's probably in the billions, uh, through cyber theft every year, and getting away with it, because they live in sanctuary countries uh, like Russia. Uh, this year, last year, the year before, the, the new thing is something called ransomware. Uh, where they get into your computer network, 
whether you're a city or a hospital or a company, and they encrypt everything. And they say to you, uh, if you'd like to use your computer network, you have to pay me uh, in Bitcoin or something. Uh, that's an epidemic. And uh, it's uh, massively underreported because people just pay and they don't often tell anybody. Um, so cybercrime is a big problem. And ransomware is right now, I think, the biggest part of that problem. Uh, in, in terms of uh, the espionage part, uh, China is back in the business uh, of hacking into U.S. companies and stealing their R&D and their proprietary information. Obama had an agreement with President Xi that they would both stop that. We weren't doing it, so it was, it was a one-way deal. Uh, and they did significantly stop it after the agreement. But after Obama left office, they're back in that business. Now, what does that mean for the United States? It means that the U.S. government or stockholders pay for R&D of new products and new systems, and the Chinese get it for nothing because they steal it. Uh, And then they beat us to market with it, and they undercut our price point uh, because they didn't have to pay for the R&D and their wages are lower. Uh, So as long as that's going on, uh, American companies are every year losing ground to Chinese companies. So the W is, is war, um, cyber war, and I've defined that as the destruction by a nation state, destruction, damage, or disruption, the three Ds, by a nation state. Uh, and does that go on? It does. For example, uh, when uh, the Iranians last year shot down a U.S. drone over the Persian Gulf, Uh, Donald Trump was about to authorize the bombing of Iran and then stopped uh, and instead uh, did a cyber attack, according to him. He he admitted this. We're not revealing secrets here. Uh, Did a cyber attack uh, against their air defense system. Apparently, we also did a cyber attack against the the Russian troll farm uh, in uh, St. Petersburg uh, on Election Day uh, in 2018. Uh, the United States government has now admitted on various occasions that Cyber Command, part of the U.S. military, has been doing cyber attacks. Uh, and there's a lot more going on that we don't admit and a lot more going on that other countries are doing. Uh, but it's not all-out war. It's like skirmishes, incidents. We haven't had a full cyber war yet. So if you're on the outside, how do you track this stuff? Where yeah. do you go to, to try and find out what's happening? It's very difficult to learn about the cyber war activities uh, unless you have a security clearance, unless you're part of the the, the government. Uh, but if you know the right blogs to read uh, and you know the right forums to be on on the Internet, uh, it's all there. One major vulnerability is the electrical grid. Uh, frankly, there are three power grids in the United States, and only three. And yes, as we saw in 2003 with the Eastern Interconnect, I don't know if you all remember the 2003 blackout, but half the Northeast... Uh, like 50 million people were without electric power because, according to the after-action report, because a tree fell in Ohio. If a tree falling in Ohio can knock out power to New York City and Detroit and, and 50 million people, that's a pretty fragile system. We asked Mr. Clark, what would happen if a foreign power attacked the power grid during the upcoming election? And uh, if they if they want to do that full on, if they want to stage a massive series of, uh, of attacks against the fragile electric power system, against the fragile voter system, could they succeed? Yes, they could. The Russians are trying very hard to cause dissent in America, to cause hate in America, and they are doing it, and it's very plain, and U.S. intelligence and counterintelligence knows it, 
And frankly, anybody who wants to read any of the uh, the reports from what happened in 2016 knows it. And it's still going on. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. There are a number of stories about the COVID-19 outbreak that we need to deal with. One is the fact that it seems to be surging in some states. And the other is one of the things that stands out when you total up the deaths is how out of proportion the number of minority deaths, especially blacks and Latinos, are going on right now. And trying to answer why has become a major concern for health officials trying to stop the spread during this entire crisis. And now, of course, it's even more so that we're seeing these increased cases. Dr. David Hayes-Bautista is with the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health and a professor of health policy and management. It's good to have you with us. How are you? Well, it's my pleasure. I'm doing quite well. And I'm glad you're doing well because many people aren't. And we were hoping with the summer and people getting outdoors and out of their homes that we might see a calming of the virus. And we're seeing that in some areas, but in a number of states, we're seeing the virus surge. What's going on? Well, uh, it has to do with the patterns of transmission of exposure. So let's chat for just a few minutes about the, uh, the unequal impact on particular groups. And we've been tracking this fairly closely. So it turns out that if we look at just the case rate, and I'm, we're very deep in the knowledge in California, but it, this follows. Basically, uh, over the course of about the past three months, if you will, the non-Hispanic white has the lowest case rate, and later that translates into lower mortality. Asians in California have about a 50% higher case rate. African Americans have a two times higher case rate. Latinos have a three times higher case rate. And Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders have a four to six times higher case rate. So we see very clearly uh, different groups are impacted. Why? Well, we have to understand that the coronavirus does not discriminate. The coronavirus doesn't care if you're rich, poor, tall, short, black, white, or anything else. It can fall like the rain on anybody. However, some people have very sturdy what we call social protective umbrellas. Uh, jobs that could be done at home, uh, the health insurance to get the care where they need it, to get the testing and access to medical care, have a usual source of care. So a lot of areas went on to lockdown, they stayed at home. But in order for them to stay at home, there were essential workers that needed to stay on the job to keep them safely at home. Now, we initially thought of essential workers as physicians and nurses, so we made sure they had personal protective gear, plus they know what to do when entering a room with an infectious disease. We never thought of farm workers as essential workers, but they are very essential. If they don't grow the food, we simply do not have food. Uh, You may remember the early days of the shutdown when people were fighting in the stores over paper towels and toilet paper. Just imagine they were having to fight over food, like the last batch of onions in a store. That would get very nasty. Farm workers made it all possible. They had to go to work. Uh, They work still without personal protective equipment. They work in large crews. They get transported in large buses, often sleep in very crowded situations. And we didn't think about them as essential workers. Then you have the truck drivers who bring the food into the cities. You have people working in the packing houses, fruit packing, meat packing, very close together. And we've seen now COVID just ripping through those workforces. You have people in the food business stocking the shelves, grocery store clerks. 
stop and consider the average grocery store clerk during a shift will have two to 300 people pass within one arm's length. And for the first two months, there was no thought of providing them personal protective equipment. So the higher case rate is not because of any inherent susceptibility. It's the nature of that these were essential businesses. These were essential workers. We didn't think of them as such. They didn't get the personal protective gear and particularly Latinos still. So Latinos, African-Americans, others were out doing these essential jobs, being exposed to coronavirus, less likely to be able to access testing. So they entered the systems only when they became very ill. So that was weeks after the beginning of the pandemic. And we start to see this continuing because these occupations and industries that they're in that are really essential to maintain this country going still often lag. They're not giving uh, very good instruction, equipment, uh, much less health insurance. So let's talk about how this affects the general population and the surge that we're seeing in some states. Does that increase the danger to other populations as well of getting COVID that we have these people whose access to health care and affordability of health care is, is beyond them? Oh, well, absolutely. Uh, and yet without them, uh, for example, the farm workers, the meatpacking workers, the grocery store workers, we just simply, they were not on our radar screen as essential workers for any number of reasons. Uh, until recently. And now as we see in the Midwest, uh, particularly the meatpacking houses, and we have meatpacking houses here in California, suddenly they can't find enough labor. And then, of course, you have people who want to deport them anyway. So if we deport the essential workers, who the heck is going to go out and expose themselves and do these things under these conditions? So, yeah, it's a very tough situation these families find themselves in. You mentioned that people are being charged for tests in some areas, and some people can't afford that. So let's talk then about the numbers that we're seeing. I've talked to a number of health officials who believe that the number of deaths due to COVID-19 are lower than reality. One clue we've seen to that is in some areas, the total death rate has gone up, but not all of those deaths are accounted among COVID-19 victims, which is inexplicable unless something else is going around at the same time. Are we undercounting? Well, let me respond to that putting a larger context. We know very little about coronavirus yet. Uh, And as it develops into the full-blown case of COVID, we're still learning a lot. Uh, For example, we've been studying some of the clinical work done in China and in Italy. And of course, we have a different structural situation here. In Italy, anybody can seek medical care. For example, we don't know if you develop a case, you're, you're positive, you go through it and you survive, does that give you an immunity? Now, if you have measles, we know, okay, it gives you immunity. If you have chickenpox, you get an immunity. We don't know if it does or not. Or if it does, is it permanent? Is it short-term? And there are cases, now again, these are cases, so how much can we generalize that? We don't know yet. Uh, people that have gotten COVID, developed COVID a second time. So we don't know, is there an immunity out there or not? And now we're just beginning to understand, okay, gee, you survived COVID, and then we're starting to understand, well, there can be a lot of sequela. There can be respiratory sequela, uh, renal sequela. We're just starting to understand this now. And this stuff was not reported in the China and the Italy studies, but we're starting to see sequela. So even if you survive, you may not be out of the woods on account of uh, coronavirus. So we're just beginning to understand what this, how this functions. Uh, both in populations and in a clinical setting. And sequela, I take it, means that things that came out of the disease that you're stuck with, like permanent lung damage, things like that. Right. We're just beginning to really start to understand that. We're looking at 300 uh, COVID patients in the hospital on whose board I sit. 
uh, to really understand better what happens. Uh, we just don't know. We're finding out. We're sort of groping our way. And just to be clear, finally, there's no evidence of anything genetic going on here at all? Well, let's put it like this. Exposure is structural. Nobody is exposed because of their genetic background. And you hear that once people have developed the disease, they're critical, they're in the hospital. Then if you had some comorbidities, such as obesity, diabetes, that may be a factor in the mortality, but that's, that's not really important until the end. So there doesn't seem to be any inherent, if you will, ancestral reason why you would have these rates that are higher. Uh, for me, it's very clear the larger explanatory variable is the structural, who is most exposed, who has the most holes in their social protective umbrella. That explains the vast majority of what's going on. The obesity, diabetes, et cetera, would come in only at the end, and it wouldn't affect the case rates at all. Dr. David Hayes Bautista is professor of health policy and management with the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. I thank you so much for being with us. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. With the surge in COVID-19 cases, planned economic reopenings, such as in Texas, have been put on hold or scaled back. This is going to have an effect on jobs. CBS and anchor Elaine Quijano spoke to Washington Post economics correspondent Heather Long on the unemployment applications holding steady at about one and a half million people a week. Heather, good to see you once again. Thanks for being here. So we are now a few months into this crisis. What does it tell us that this many people are still filing for unemployment? This is a really alarming sign. We all thought that this number would be heading towards a million or even under a million right now. Instead, we've seen this plateau at 1.5 million. And what this is telling us is two things, both of which are pretty scary. The first is that some of those layoffs we thought would be temporary, you know, people just out of work for a few weeks and then coming back in the summer. Instead, they're becoming permanent layoffs. And we saw Macy's announce uh, nearly 4,000 more layoffs today. Uh, similarly, the other trend we're seeing is more and more white-collar jobs being cut. I was speaking with someone just yesterday who lost their job at a marketing company. So again, you're, and that's usually a sign that a recession is going to be longer-lasting. Just so many shockwaves from this. Uh, so the extra $600 federal unemployment benefit is ending in just over a month. What is the potential impact of that? It's huge. There's been a lot of concern that this $600, you know, that's on top of the basic unemployment that people would have qualified for even if there wasn't a pandemic. So together, it's about 600 plus about 300. So $900 is what a typical person is getting right now. And, you know, that's more than some people make, especially if they were working in a, a low wage industry. So Republicans say, hey, is this dissuading people from, from jobs? Are they staying home to collect these unemployment benefits instead of going to work? On the flip side, though, we've all seen those bread lines. We've seen people lining up at food banks. We've seen some really sad sights out of Oklahoma just in the last 24 hours with hundreds of people lining up outside the unemployment office because they still can't get any money, let alone the $600. They can't get any money because the systems are still being so slow to process this. And so the big concern at the end of July is you, know, you, you want to encourage people to go back to work, but the reality is our unemployment rate will still be 
12%, 13%, then we won't have enough jobs to absorb all these people. So I think there's probably going to be a compromise, maybe of extending it, but maybe at a lower level, maybe $200. I've heard floated on the Hill recently, 200 or 300. So in our final minute here, Heather, is it clear yet what the economic recovery will look like? And what's the estimated timeline for that recovery? It's clear we won't have a full recovery until there's a vaccine. So much of this depends on, on people feeling confident to be able to go out again and, and resume the normal activities, whether it was restaurant, going to a restaurant or taking a vacation, flying to Disney World that they used to do before. You know, Disney World still hasn't reopened any of their parks. So that's a good benchmark right there for how this recovery is going. Um, what we're seeing, we're seeing a little bit of bounce back. We passed the worst part. The worst part was clearly in April and May, but we are still a long way from healthy. CBS and anchor Elaine Quijano talking to Washington Post economics correspondent Heather Long. This has been America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Gil Gross. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. Auto Trader.